Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, could I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Today we have a special guest, Brent Gleason, a Navy SEAL combat veteran and serial entrepreneur and a personal friend of mine, author of two best-selling books, Taking Point and soon to be released, Embrace the Suck. I, I think it's going to be a bestseller. He's an acclaimed speaker on topics ranging from leadership and culture and has spoken to thousands of business leaders, professional athletes, first responders all over the world. He's consulted with companies such as Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, PayPal, Nestle, the Toronto Raptors, Morgan Stanley, and many, many more. He's also involved in charitable organizations such as the Navy SEAL Family Foundation. They do wonderful things. I know my family's benefited from the Family Foundation over the years. And also March of Dimes. He's a wonderful guy. And today, we get some insight into what he's seen over the last uh, several years as he's been in the civilian world outside of the teams, what he's used his experience in the Navy SEAL community to help those who are looking to impact their culture. So please listen in. This one's a lot of fun. Welcome back today, Brent. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. So Let's Brent, do it, brother. Yeah, buddy. Oh, man, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. It's good to have someone who's so in, in tuned with the subject that Chris and I love and are infatuated with, but also shares the same background as I do, you know, coming from the SEAL team. So, so Brent, I'd love to hear and I'd love for our listeners to hear through your mouth a little bit about your path to your current passion? You know, how did you find yourself all of a sudden, you know, uh, well, not all of a sudden, I know it took time, but <laughs> CEO as, as taking point, writing books, you know, I'm sure you didn't wake up when you were a, a young Navy SEAL <laughs> thinking, uh, eventually I'm going to do this. How did right. you, how did you get here? What was your path to, uh, to this passion, if you will? Uh, it was just uh, like many of us, it was kind of a, uh, an interesting, uh, journey. Uh, quick background, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, did uh, undergrad at Southern Methodist University and with, with no real aspirations or vision of joining the military at all, period. Uh, again, this is just pre-9-11, so peacetime era. My dad had served in the Marine Corps during during Vietnam, but had never talked about it much or, or pushed that path uh, on me or my twin brother. Uh, if anything, he was you know happy for us to be uh, just getting jobs as soon as we graduate. So <laughs> like any parent. And so I graduated, I took a job as a financial analyst with a global real estate uh, development and investment company uh, working downtown Dallas. But at the time I had a, a close friend of mine, a fraternity brother of mine at SMU who was a year behind me. So he was a senior now uh, and soon to graduate. And he was, in fact, one of these young men who had a more or less a lifelong dream and passion of uh, serving as a naval special warfare operator. Um, obviously, a different mindset back then. We weren't at war at the time, more of a, a personal journey, so to speak. Uh, obviously, the call to serve still strong, but obviously, as you know, it had a different meaning uh, back then. 
and different implications of what service and sacrifice would mean being a wartime SEAL as opposed to a peacetime SEAL. So he and I started training together. For for me, it was just a way to stay fit, you know, after long hours at the office and on the weekends. And for him, it was preparing for this arduous journey ahead. And I had read a couple books, Dick Marchenko's books and some other books about SEALs in Vietnam during college, obviously fascinated by the history, the culture, the mindset. But again, not a real, uh, no real implication from that uh, for me to uh, take that calculated risk and dive headfirst in, into the Navy. Uh, but gradually over time, with the more training we did and the more books I read, I really became fascinated. I know we're going to talk a lot about culture today, but I came, became fascinated with history and how we developed, intentionally have developed the culture in naval special warfare, uh, the leadership mindset at every level of the organization. And that coupled with the somewhat boring nature of my entry-level financial analyst position led to the culmination of me making that decision to probably the real first decision of my life uh, that was a significant amount of calculated risk to leave a relatively lucrative job after graduating college, enlist in the Navy, uh, and try out for a program that has the highest attrition rate of any other program out there, uh, as far as I can tell. And well, for the you, record, you, Chris, <laughs> just so you know, I love the fact that Brent enlisted. You know, we got two e dogs here, so I, I, I love That's the right. fact that he did that. <laughs> well, and, and you know this, Kyle. It's interesting that, and a lot of people are surprised by this data that uh, about seventy to almost seventy-five percent of our enlisted seals have uh, an undergrad degree, or the, or the majority of an undergrad degree. Right. Uh, and even back then, enlisting is somewhat of a strategic move. Obviously, there's always the opportunity to go the Mustang route, which means you start as an enlisted uh, person and then you, you go to officer candidacy school or a seaman to admiral type program. But uh, it's also can be a little bit faster path to buds because just from a pure mathematic standpoint, there's only so many slots for officers. Uh, traditionally, a good portion of it goes to the Naval Academy, the other go to uh, people who go to uh, OCS after college. So uh, like many, I enlisted. And my, my buddy and I had our officer packages put together. We'd taken all the tests, gotten all the letters of recommendation. And one day we're like, you know what, screw it. We dumped those packages in the garbage and enlisted. <laughs> and, and off we went. Uh, and I was in Bud's class 235. Uh, graduated with some notable SEALs like David Goggins and, and some other great guys, uh, phenomenal warriors uh, that they all became. And when we graduated from BUDS, there was a few days between uh, leaving BUDS and starting SQT or SEAL qualification training, as you know, the advanced portion of the pipeline. Uh, literally two days before we started SQT was 9-11. So that's when, as you recall, the whole sort of mindset and culture shift started uh, that we're still basically in, we've been in a constant state of change and transformation, uh, in the special operations community and the military in its entirety. Uh, and after several tours or, or combat deployments, uh, I left, went to grad school and, uh, dove headfirst into the world of entrepreneurship, which has a similar failure rate as steel trainings. <laughs> Figured, why stop with all the, all the risk taking, uh, then and, and just continue on. So that's just a quick synopsis of, I built and sold a couple of companies. Uh, Taking Point Leadership is my third company. And um, the reason we started that is because I really found a passion, not necessarily for the industries uh, my first two companies were in. They were more technology-focused uh, organizations. But I found a passion for building high-performing teams and really drawing uh, from the leadership and culture principles that forge elite special operations units. And what can we learn from that and ingrain those mindsets, those behaviors, those cultural experiences uh, and accountability mechanisms to create high-performing teams uh, in the civilian business world. And as we know, with the complexities of multi-generational workforces and uh, the nuances of uh, and challenges of being having to learn how to motivate different types of people in different scenarios uh, is very challenging. It's very, very hard to uh, transform an organization to have a culture that's very, very well managed and that really most importantly aligns with the desired result of that organization. So that's a, a quick synopsis on the journey and uh, we'll go from there. Well, that's great. Um, as a civilian, uh, I was fascinated by how everybody gets sort of to their path in life, uh, especially through the Navy SEAL community that Kyle's introduced me to so many great people, individuals. So thank you for your service. Um, let me start off by uh, asking one question that's it's important to me. The listeners, unless you're like me, um, won't really care uh, except for this one question. You said you're a twin. Um, as an identical twin, I need to know if you're a real twin or if you're just one of these fake twins that are sort of fraternal. Um, because identical <laughs> twins are sort of legit. No, 
Um, I'm 100% a fake twin. <laughs> oh, geez. I, I, it's actually funny because I forget the, you know, how this exactly happened other than the complete, uh, uh, ineptness of the doctor, but, uh, I was a surprise <laughs> twin. So they didn't even know they were having twins. Uh, I don't know what was going on in 1977, but, uh, I was a surprise. So my brother was born and, uh, you know, a few minutes later they were getting ready to wrap things up and, uh, I'm still they, in here. Yeah, I was like, hey, 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 guys. Hey, same thing <laughs> happened to my mom. <laughs> she had no idea she was having twins. They said our heartbeats, every time they went, they were in sync. Yeah. So they never heard two heartbeats. Um, and, uh, you know, I was born, I was the oldest by three minutes. And they said, my mom's like, I'm not sure. I mean, it feels, still feels like, <laughs> like maybe I don't, like she was trying to dance around it. And the doctor goes, yep, there's another one in there. So, uh, yeah, it's fine. And I mean, you're probably similar, but all twins are you know, super small. I was just, we were both just a little bit over five pounds, but you know, I'm six, one, my brother's six, three. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, so, I'm, I'm the Danny DeVito of, of the, uh, of the team. <laughs> exactly. Well, Brent, I'm going to ask you some questions. Kyle's going to sort of take a business cultural perspective. I wanted to ask you because I, and, and really this is for Kyle as well. So I'm just going to be the guy on the other end here asking questions that I think are going to prepare us for culture and the conversation when it comes to business. But from a, a still perspective, I've been fascinated to ask a series of these questions that sort of lead into the the culture and the business thing. So if you'll let me indulge yes. uh, me in this way, but um, I wanted to ask you about fear and mental strongness and, and sort of the psychology behind uh, how you are taught as SEALs to overcome terrifying things, challenging things. And so I've got uh, five or six questions we're going to knock out of here uh, right at the sure. start. I love, I know you're not prepared for these at all, uh, which is great because I think you know, <laughs> transparent responses. But how we manage to overcome stress, being resilient, can be a key indicator for a great career. You know, people who kind of can handle in that chaos tend to thrive um, in life and success, and certainly when it comes to the SEAL teams. What do they teach you guys in the SEALs about managing stress and fear? It's a good question, and I, I get that question a lot, both from uh, young guys that I mentor uh, into and through the program, uh, Kyle, as you know, and then uh, also just you know when I'm out speaking or uh, doing interviews like this. Uh, it's not necessarily a line item on the curriculum, per se. It's literally uh, a buildup from the day you start you know, indoctrination, moving into first phase, second phase, third phase of BUDS, and on into uh, advanced training. Every scenario, essentially, they put you in is designed to obviously achieve extremely high levels of learning, but also to, as we say, get comfortable being uncomfortable. So you're constantly pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone. Uh, it, it may not seem like it, but we have a vast amount of diversity uh, in the, the people coming through SEAL training. You've got people who come from impoverished families who had rough childhoods to people who uh, come from billionaire families in Texas who own sports franchises to everything in between. And right. so, <laughs> right. I was maybe too specific about that one, but, <laughs> um, Brad, we know you're uh, listening. We love you, buddy. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it creates this really, really fascinating level playing field. Uh, you know, we have, uh, elite athletes who don't make it through the program. We have just, you know, regular folks like myself who, who, who seem to, you know, navigate it relatively successfully uh, without, you know, being blessed, not having had to deal with significant injury, which is always a challenge and some of those things that are out of your control. But what they really help focus on uh, as it relates to mental toughness and resilience are the simple things around focusing on what's in your immediate control. I'm only going to focus today in this moment on making it to breakfast, making it to lunch, passing this afternoon's pass-fail evolution. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow till tonight or in the morning, because if you try to wrap your head around all of the many challenges that you face going through SEAL training and many of those evolutions that are pass-fail, uh, then your head would explode. <laughs> you would you'd be overcome with, with the stress and anxiety of, um, yeah, of potential for failure. And that's what really gets to a lot of people outside of injury and just the general realization that, hey, this ain't for me. This is a lot more challenging than I thought it was going to be physically, emotionally, mentally, but also just uh, for me, it was the level of stress and anxiety that you have to deal with because it's physically 
taxing. It's emotionally taxing, mentally taxing. There's academics woven into everything you're doing and you have to make the grade as well. So uh, it's kind of like going back to school or getting a, a, a graduate degree in naval special warfare while also dealing with the physical elements uh, that are extremely taxing, uh, as we all know. So the, the, the simple answer is that almost everything you do, uh, they've, they've developed this over decades to become a true art and science uh, for developing and forging some of our most elite warriors uh, in the world. And so almost every evolution you do, whether it's in the classroom, on the beach, in the pool, out in the ocean, is designed to uh, enhance your learning ability, enhance your ability to manage stress and anxiety, and really help you compartmentalize in a healthy way and channel your energies into the areas where you have the most impact and the most immediate control. And that drives resilience, it slowly builds mental toughness, and it helps us really push our energy uh, towards a desired outcome as opposed to wasting a lot of time, thought, and emotion on elements that are out of our control. That's 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 great. Um, very, very fascinating answer. Good, good stuff. Um, the second part of that was fear, though. Um, you know, you know, Kyle is, uh, I think he's one of the most, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how you say it, the SEALs with the most sort of one-off, how, how do you say it, like one-off missions? You're out there on your own. Um, I, I have no idea. I, I, that I was acrophobic, though, going into <laughs> BUDS. <laughs> terrified of heights. <laughs> Uh, you know, see, I would, I would, you know, Brett. I, one thing I would add, you know, that's it's very fascinating. I love your answer. Is I've always thought that that our community is like this magnet, right? So it draws guys like you and I who might not have been born with this great natural ability, or or you know, I'll use Goggins. Goggins is a good example too, right? Like yep. he was not naturally built for for long. And that's what he talks about, right? He was not naturally built for long distance running. And it draws guys like you and I in to make ourselves better. Maybe we weren't born with this. Um, I know I was definitely not born with the gift of running, but it drew me in to try and improve my acumen, my physical capability, so that when I got to there, to to buds, I, I was at least good enough, right? Right. So it's that magnet, Chris, if you will, that kind of draws us in too, as well, right? You know, and, and demands the best. It's a good point. I, I write about my, my new book is called Embrace the Suck. It is about resilience and developing mental toughness. And David Goggins uh, provided the forward for the book uh, since we went through Buzz together and served Team 5 together. So I've known him for you know 20 plus years. And uh, and I'll, I'll segue back to the, the comment or the question about fear in a minute. But my argument in the book, of course, that aligns with a lot of you know research and psychology and behavioral science is that resilience and grit and mental toughness are uh, muscles that can be exercised. You can develop these over time. Some people naturally trend toward uh, higher levels of mental toughness and grit, predominantly based on possibly their background or how they were raised or the challenges that they may have faced and bounced back from throughout their life, and some not. Uh, you know, like. David came from, uh, I would say, impoverished, but a challenged background from an abusive household dealing with childhood obesity and learning disabilities and other types and racism uh, through a large portion of his childhood. And that what drives is what drives a large portion of the foundational elements of his grit and mental toughness, whereas other people don't necessarily come from a real hardship uh, you know, and then go on to things like still training or other challenging uh, aspects of life and also have a certain level of natural uh, grit and resilience that, that maybe others don't. But it can be it, it's it's a learned behavior and a learned skill by kind of eating the elephant one bite at a time, taking each challenge, each obstacle as they come, navigating them. And then you get uh, you bounce back a little bit faster, a little bit stronger every single time. So it's something you can develop over time. Now, when it comes to to fear, uh, in SEAL training, from my perspective, uh, the only true fear, I think, for most is the fear of failure, <laughs> the fear of not succeeding uh, at that endeavor. Uh, because many who come into the program have, have had a desire, a passion, a dream uh, to be a naval special warfare operator since they were young. I've had folks who, guys who reached out to me when they were freshmen or sophomores in high school. <laughs> like, there's not much mentorship I can do with you yet. Uh, you are a sophomore in high school, living in East Texas. But I'm speaking specifically about the one mentee who's now a, uh, just finished his third combat deployment with team with team three. And now he's uh, 
going to an East Coast team so we can have a better chance of uh, successfully screening for uh, you know our Tier One special missions unit. So uh, you never know where these uh, you know where that can take you. But what I've seen is uh, is really what I call the three piece. And you know I've I've obviously asked you know in the naval special warfare community how and Kyle you know this, but we've done we have done you know a decent amount of research on identifying the mental, cognitive, physical attributes of students more likely to successfully navigate the program, uh, just like a, an organization trying to enhance their talent acquisition strategy so they can get the best people and retain that talent. We obviously uh, make significant strides to do the same thing. Uh, and a lot of the data is sort of those less measurable uh, attributes of passion, uh, you know, purpose, and perseverance. Uh, passion being one of the strongest ones. Uh, just like any aspect of life, career, or, or any challenge that anyone uh, strives to overcome or a goal they're trying to achieve, uh, without a deep level of passion for the achievement of that goal or uh, success in a certain endeavor, however we define success, uh, it's very difficult to to find any element of success because there has to be that passion because the passion is what drives you through uh, the toughest times. And if any goal or uh, aspiration that we have in life, if it doesn't involve some level of adversity, pain, or suffering, then in my opinion, it's just not worth doing. Uh, and then when it comes to fear, uh, people always ask, well, you know, what's the, you know, Kyle, I'm sure you get this, you know, what's the toughest mission you've ever been on? Or was there a time or a moment when uh, you were like, well, this is probably it. <laughs> or you're terrified and the guns are, you know, bullets are flying past your head and people are getting hurt. Um, and what you realize is that you don't realize how well prepared you are and how well trained you are until you get into that first close quarters gun battle or, you know, a land warfare situation or a situation where you're you're outnumbered. Uh, any type of scenario you can imagine in, in a combat um, environment. Uh, and, and there's that misconception that we're like other military units where we do our training and then we're, you know, get you tried it and then you're a SEAL and that's it. Well, we train constantly. And that's been kind of an argument I you know, uh, Jocko talked about this, I think, on Joe Rogan's podcast here recently about uh, the lack of training in, you know, our, uh, in our, a lot of our first responder units and police force where, you know, there really is just a couple months of training and then get your gun and your badge and you're you're off. Whereas we spend. Hey, Brent. Step, yes, sir. So I, I just want to before you kind of go on, because I think we're, we're moving a little bit away, but I want to go back to just something you said, you know, uh, sure. one of the biggest motivators is fear of failure. Um, but yeah, seventy-five percent of people who join uh, the seals and make it through or go through buds uh, end up quitting. And I think there's a, there, in my mind, there's a great distinction there. They're not, they don't flunk out. They personally have to quit. They have to get up and and ring the bell um, in order to leave. And so that's that. I mean, at that point, um, what does that do to you mentally? Um, and if, if there's a failure, fear of failure, there, there's an awful lot of people who are, are failing when it comes to sort of making it through. Yeah. Um, and I'm staring at on the screen here at two guys who did not uh, ring the bell. And so what is it that you two have or you felt um, that you were able to sort of persevere uh, and, and get through it mentally? Because uh, there's a sense of fear. You know, is it, am I going to make it? There's a sense of fear. This is overwhelming. I'm hurting. There's a sense of fear. Uh, I'm terrified to be humiliated and ring the bell. I mean, there's a lot of things that come into play. But you two um, made it through. What did you two do to make it through? Uh, it's an I think extreme. This relates. Mm -hmm. This is great. We're we're on we're on Skype, so we always talk over each other and things like this. I was just going to say, I think this will eventually lead to a great conversation about uh, persevering at, in the workplace. Absolutely. Uh, for 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 Kyle and for me, it's a, it's an extreme enjoyment for deep suffering. Uh, it's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> no, now everybody you know, I've asked that question to says the same thing. It's, it's uh, they're, they're probably is, real quick, Brent. Is uh, yeah. I'll, you know, when you were talking about the scariest moments, you know, bullets flying over, I'll I'll never forget. Actually, like my first firefight, honestly, because of that training, was not as scary mm -hmm. as the the lack of training which I had to go over the freaking cargo net. <laughs> you know, like seriously, seriously, yeah. I was terrified. I was born, I was acrophobic as a four or five year old. I was terrified of heights. So when I got to Buds and I saw that cargo net, I was freaking terrified. And guess what, Chris? I didn't have any training at that point. You right. know, so when I, when bullets are flying over the head, now I had you know two, three, four years of training at that. Well, probably two and a half. But but my point is, I had training. 
Um, and so to, but what I did to get past that fear to, to climb over that net was you're right, Chris, it was that fear of letting my brothers, uh, down. It was the fear of not making my, my goal. It was a fear of, of not making, not reaching and not achieving my goal. That's what it was for me. Yeah, I, I like that. And there, there, there is that. Even in the early stages of buds, you create a very deep bond with uh, your classmates to your left and right. And there is that sort of that, you know, sort of that, you know, saying or, or prayer in naval special warfare. Lord, let me not prove unworthy of my brothers. So even in those early stages, it's not just letting yourself down or your family or the dozens of friends you told you're going to be a seal. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones when Minty's approach me that they say, well, I'm going to be a SEAL. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you're going to train your butt off and you're going to make your best possible attempt at becoming a SEAL. But, um, but yeah, it really is. It, it does go back to to training. I mean, our first my first gunfight was in the stairwell of a two-story house in Baghdad. I mean, talk about close quarters. Uh, and you realize that you, you just fall back to muscle memory and to your training and it, it, you know, whether it's a three, three minute gunfight or a 45 minute gunfight, it seems like two seconds. Uh, and then interestingly, everybody has a different perspective on what happened <laughs> afterwards, the fog of war. Hey guys, but let's get so, back to, um, yeah, let's get back to, well, hold on. Let me, let me just press back a little bit. Um, cause you two are have going on on training in, I think what you both have said is fascinating. The way, the way I captured all my paper was fear is removed when you're properly prepared. And you both said, you know, we just trained so much that by the time I was supposed to be afraid, I wasn't really that afraid. Uh, we had trained so much. But I want to go back just a little bit um, because I, I know you two have a deeper answer. And so I'm going to press in. What do you guys have that you believe you had that 75% of the people you went through buds did not have? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. You guys are jumping quick to the end. And I want to, you must look around and go, you know, that guy, he doesn't, or that, you know, that person doesn't have this or that. And, um, I don't understand why I got it, but I got it in spades or, or whatever it might be. There, there's two things, especially as being a trainer, as being an instructor at the center, there's two things. And, and number one, and, and we, a lot of team guys kind of breeze through this, but it is, it is a reality. And the reality is if you don't have the physical acumen, the physical capability, uh, to just be lucky enough, to be blessed enough, however you view it, to make it through the training, <clears throat> excuse me, your body can break down. And we see that a lot. And, uh, you know, if your body's just not there and it's just not achievable, um, it's not going to happen. At the end of the day, it's just not going to happen. You can have you can have my second one, which is what I'm going to go to, which is Will. You can have Will all, the day, all day long, but sometimes there's and not sometimes a lot of times there's those bodies that just will not make it through mm. there. Yep. There just is their bodies will break down. And then number two is what I was going to say is the will. You have to have that will, mm-hmm. that determination. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm sure Brent's got stories like this when I was in training, Chris, you know, um, bro, I had 103 was my temperature on breakout on breakout. <laughs> you know what Wait, I mean? Like breakout for the common the common person. That's the that's the moment in time, the first moment uh, for Hell Week, the famous Hell Week. Dude, my temperature was like 102.5, 103. And uh, the doc was like, hey, what are you going to do? I was like, get away from me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, by uh, a week or two later, I had, um, you know, cellulitis in my knee and I couldn't even freaking walk, you know. Uh, so my point is, is that Brent's probably got stories like that, too, where you just push mm-hmm. through training. I mean, you if we bring any Navy, any guy, any team guy on on the, the show or you talk to anybody, Chris, you're going to find every single one of us. Every single one of us has a training story where their body just did not cooperate to a certain degree and they just had to push through. Every single yeah. one of us have a story like that. Yeah, and I, I'll echo that because that's very, very similar to my answer and probably similar to your point, Kyle, of what most guys would say uh, is, uh, you know, the, the physical ability. So when I when I 100 percent went all in on deciding to you know leave corporate America and and, and follow this path, uh, I literally changed everything in my life and my routines, dietary habits, workout regimen, even going as far as removing people from my life that I knew would stand in the way of achieving that goal. Uh, and just like in anybody achieving any type of uh, 
challenging uh, goal in life. Oftentimes there's routines and activities and even people uh, that either don't wish you well or will distract you from ultimately achieving that goal. So fitness for me was the one element that was 100% in my control. So my buddy and I trained relentlessly for well over a year, including six months in, at high altitude in Crested Butte, Colorado, because I wanted fitness to be one thing that was not on my list of, um, of worries. <laughs> let that, that's in your control, so let that be something that is the last thing you have to think about. There's all these other external factors, emotional, mental, uh, that once put in that environment that is buds, you can watch all the movies and read all the books, but once you are tested in the brutal crucible that is those first few weeks and then leading up to hell week, um, you don't really know how you or your the brothers next to you are going to react in those situations because you've never been in those situations ever before in your entire life. Nothing like it. And so having the, the, the will uh, and mental fortitude to train your body uh, intelligently, but as hard as you possibly can. And then, of course, going back to will or passion, uh, one of the formulas we teach in our leadership development programs around motivation theory is uh, is ability times motivation equals performance. So it's a multiplication formula because if one element is zero, performance is zero. So like Kyle, like you were saying, you can have all the will in the world. And if your body breaks down, your body breaks down. You can be an Olympic athlete, but in those moments when you lack the will and the passion to push through, you're probably going to succumb to the evil voices in your head that are telling you, this is not for you. Make the pain stop, make the pain go away. But then an hour later, when those who make that choice are warm and dry, uh, they're consumed with regret. And it, it, it is a thing. We've, we've dealt with a lot of guys who uh, enter into deep depression and things like that. But uh, those two things, ability and motivation, uh, and that passion, like I said, the path, for me, it was a passion. Once I'd committed to this goal, it was a deep passion and, more importantly, an emotional connectivity to that mission, to not just serve in the military, but to serve in Naval Special Warfare as a SEAL operator. And That's that good. emotional connectivity is what drives people, just like in the workforce, in, in an organization, any high-performing team, uh, when you have high levels of engagement, those engaged employees or engaged team members have an emotional connectivity to the, the vision, the mission of the organization, and its purpose, its why. Uh, and for, for in some way, shape, or form, their values uh, and their own personal purpose in life connects somehow with the organization's vision and purpose. That's good. Those are good answers. That's good. Physical, you know, I don't know that I thought of it. Will definitely uh, plays a part. I think that's important. You know, as I look at people who are successful in my life uh, or I've seen that have been in my life, you know, it's definitely they have a will. They definitely have a passion, um, motivation. I think that's well said. Let's segue then over to maybe how this translates into the business world. Um, you know, I essentially Navy SEALs, you know, we just discussed, they have to go like six months of training and, and a pure hell week or, or two or more, who knows specifically <laughs> um, how long people continue that hell. Um, it's often overlooked as a, it's, it's often looked rather like a sign of amazement wonder, you know, oh, wow, you did hell week. That's incredible. What was that like? I can't believe you made it through this. Wow. So many people left. But when we sort of go through a hell week at work, um, or a hell month, it's kind of looked down on. It's kind of looked at like, this is terrible. It's the opposite. It's a miserable experience. It's a lousy place to work. Why do you think there's that justification of the two? You know, when we do it in the military, it's, it's looked at as sort of a, a badge of honor. When we do it in, in the office, it can sometimes, not all the time, I don't want, mean to think every time somebody goes to something hard, it, it works out, nobody appreciates it. But oftentimes, you know, people don't love their jobs. When it comes to culture, the culture in the, in, in the entire workplace is, is usually sometimes toxic. And whenever you persevere through something, um, we sort of look at it as a negative. It, Negative. I was trying to slur negativity and negative together, but in a, in a way that does that make sense? I don't know if yeah. I'm completely. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it it does. And I, as a, a transitioning seal through grad school and then jumping right into entrepreneurship, uh, obviously uh, a lot of my quote unquote wisdom is just a uh, key learnings from a long, long long line of very costly mistakes <laughs> that I've made. And not all things we learn about leadership and culture in the SEAL teams, usually those are a byproduct of our behaviors and expectations and, and the mission, but they don't translate perfectly. Uh, you know, the, the basic principles are there, but they don't translate perfectly in how to manage a multi-generational workforce or engage millennials or uh, focus on uh, engagement and retention strategies as it relates to the culture of the organization. Because quite frankly, 
most civilian organizations do not prioritize uh, designing and managing a culture that aligns with the actions necessary to achieve desired business outcomes. Oftentimes, it's haphazard or just a byproduct of uh, a combination of everyone's experiences and, and rituals and beliefs, um, people who have come and gone over the years. Oftentimes, obviously, it's reflective of leadership. In any organization, as leaders, we get the behaviors we tolerate. And oftentimes, uh, the the negative aspects of a culture in the organization, you, you got to look at the top. Uh, it's one of the burdens of command. And if we as leaders don't actively design the culture that we want and align that culture and those behavioral norms with um, the desired outcomes and results, then it does become haphazard and uh, something that is not well managed and can even become, obviously, to your point, uh, toxic to where uh, it reduces performance, it reduces morale, it increases uh, turnover. <laughs> so, and, and all of that impacts our ability to provide quality products and services uh, to our customers or clients. Uh, we call that the service profit chain. If you think about, well, what, what drives growth and profitability in an organization? Well, the, the answer really is uh, repeat or return customers. Uh, can you still hear me, Chris? Yep. Okay. So, you know, what drives profitability and growth in an organization? Well, it's repeat and return customers. Well, what drives that? Obviously, it's uh, highly engaged people providing high quality work. <laughs> and highly, you get high quality uh, work from highly engaged people with really, really good leadership, not management, but really inspired leadership that aligns those people and their behaviors and their expectations uh, and rewards and, and recognition mechanisms with, you know, with the designed culture. Uh, so it really all comes back to leadership. That's a good point to transition to you, Chris, right there. Yeah, the um, transition, when you talk about culture, you know, one of the things I think that, um, Brent, that you say that is really fascinating to me, and I couldn't agree with more, is culture is the chief enabler of change. And so sometimes we think leadership is the chief enabler of change. Um, and, you know, I think that we need good leaders, but it's really an entire culture that comes together that makes change, not often one individual within a large organization that can do too much unless you're the CEO, for instance. Um, but if we really want to impact change, uh, we all have to come together. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that statement, um, how you arrived at that conclusion, maybe some experiences you've seen and had? Sure. That is one of, by the way, uh, Brent, that's one of my favorite lines from your book. I, I love Love that concept. Bravo. Uh, I saw it on a bumper sticker, but uh, anyways. Well, <laughs> I thought it. I saw it on Twitter like years ago, but I gave you credit anyways. No. Um, it, uh, it's interesting. And I'll actually take it back real briefly to uh, the constant state of transformation and organizational change the, the military and the special operations community has been in in this post-9-11 world. Uh, and uh, General Stanley McChrystal uh, wrote about this significantly in uh, his book, uh, Team of Teams. And uh, and he, um, I interviewed him briefly for, for, for my first book, Taking Point, uh, fascinated with philosophies. They aligned heavily with mine, as, as it also relates to the fast-paced world of modern business, which I'll segue to in a minute. But, you know, in that, especially in those first few years, you know, when we're moving at the speed of war and constant deployments and we're trying to bring lessons learned back from the battlefield to shift in, you know, how we train, how we deploy the structures of our organization, our operating models, literally everything was in a constant state of change. Uh, and we're still somewhat in that. Uh, any type of organizational change takes years, not months. And with a very consistent, rigorous effort uh, through good leadership and also focus and, to your point earlier, the participation of the majority, if not all, of everybody in the organization pushing in that direction. Um, and what I gathered from that, and, and he makes this similar correlation in his book, is you know what can we learn from that in the fast-paced world of modern business in the 21st century? Change is the operative word. We're in a constant state of change. More change in 2020 than any of us really wanted. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we can talk right. about that some other time. But uh, but there are some interesting key learnings in the current environment that we're in as it relates to change, because oftentimes the external environment forces transformation, where just for survival, as opposed to well, we want to make the organization better. We got to improve our employee retention rates. We've got to improve profitability. We want to keep our customers longer. All those elements that anybody would think about in any type of organization. Uh, but in the current environment, you know, think about digital transformation, for example. 
Uh, most organizations out there have been forced down this path of digital transformation that might take some organizations, large and small, years to accomplish successfully, whereas a lot of us have had to segue, at least in some fashion, uh, to the usage of greater levels of the technology just to survive, just to communicate, just to continue engaging our clients uh, or customers. So uh, it really is, uh, and, and it does go back to culture. Uh, an organization has to have a culture that's accepting of change uh, and that it all is that's never really satisfied with the status quo. I mean, it's very much similar to the culture in the SEAL teams where you're, it's made up of a group of people where the individual is never satisfied with the status quo. We have a large level of transparency and we have a learning culture through constant feedback loops. And the highest performing business organizations are similar to that. They're agile and nimble in their learning ability. Therefore, they can pivot and shift faster than other similar organizations. And that really has to be part of the culture. It can't be talked about. It can't be forced. It has to be authentic. So I'd like to pull on that a little bit, Brent, and that's so valuable. You know, if if culture is the chief enabler of change, so when you have or you're working with a, a company that might be, you know, status quo, maybe maybe um, you know, maybe they're a construction firm, maybe they're uh, you know an accounting firm, maybe there's not a lot of change, and, and I'm not diamond out those industries. I'm, I'm thankful for all industries, but. You know, think of an industry or a business that might not have a lot of change. We all know change is coming. It's 2020. Yeah. They're gonna. These companies are all gonna be forced to have change in some form or fashion. So, what are you advising to those types of clients? Like specifically, tactically, technically, uh -huh. what are you advising to them these days in terms of like, hey, prepare the way to uh, to work through change down the road once it comes. What are, right. you, what are uh, you? Uh, how are you advising them in in that it, sense? It, it's a good question. You actually mentioned construction, as which actually, ironically, is one of the verticals we work significantly in as it relates to our leadership yeah. and organizational development programs. And you're right; it's an industry that, for most organizations right now, has not really been impacted. It's critical business. Uh, you know, one client that's been with us for a couple of years now they they're forging ahead, and you know they're uh, they haven't been highly impacted other than some you know new regulations with wearing masks and distancing on the job site when it even makes sense. But for organizations that don't, maybe their industries are stable or they don't naturally experience forced change, well, oftentimes it goes back, and this is kind of a misconception when we talk about culture and how do we design that culture and it seems so elusive and I can't get my hands wrapped around it. It's not just about immediately launching into, you know, trying to change the way people think or behave or enhancing leadership or you know, writing it down in a culture manifesto and putting it on the website. In large part, it goes back to the, the tactics and standard operating procedures and best practices that an organization has, that they're documented, and they measure performance based on uh, the following of those procedures, because those procedures should be aligned with uh, the desired behaviors that achieve results uh, in an organization, like whether we're talking about the SEAL teams or a winning sports team or a high-performing very profitable business organization, oftentimes what we're doing when we go into organizations is kind of lifting up the hood and seeing, you know, what's documented. Maybe the operating model is one they've been using for five years and kind of the whole Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there philosophy of the, the systems, processes, people, and culture, whether it's designed or not, that got you to one level of success and, and growth in an organization is typically not the same that'll get you over that next natural hurdle that all it businesses face during times of growth uh, and you have to you have to transform transform behavior procedures best practices till you grow to that next inevitable hurdle and then you have to do it again so you guys will actually use like maybe an SOP uh, a standard operating procedure change to uh, to go through that as kind of like a um, a shift or a, or a technique to say hey let's go through this change. This yep. is easily adoptable and start getting everyone in the in the mindset of getting used to uh, more and more changes or improvements even. Exactly. And oftentimes it really is simple. And some of our clients are multi-billion dollar organizations. And, and thankfully, you know, a lot of organizations, thankfully, saying it selfishly, uh, just all proper mission planning, execution, debriefing. They don't do after action reviews. They don't collect data. They don't push that information out to the team. So they don't have a learning culture. So their ability to even think about change uh, is, uh, is lacking and it's daunting to most people in the organization. And oftentimes uh, organizations, we, we often think of tenure as being a good thing, but uh, in some of the industries we work with, uh, extremely high levels of tenure is a normal thing where people have been with 
company 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And that's not necessarily always a a good thing. Uh, That's a mindset that has to be uh, challenged a little bit uh, when preparing an organization for operating in this fast-paced world of business because any organization, regardless of industry, uh, has been and will face changes necessary changes multiple times throughout their their life cycle. I read a great book by Chris McChesney once, and I think he wrote the four disciplines of, four principles of discipline, something like that. And, um, you know, what he said was a lot of companies uh, oftentimes do exactly what you said. They kind of get comfortable with the status quo. And so instead of innovating and figuring out how to get over the next hurdle, they get so big that there's too much risk. So they just end up buying these innovative companies. So Microsoft or uh, Apple or whoever it might be uh, or Amazon, they'll just buy these startup companies because they have money and they they have too much to risk to sort of be um, out there trying to break past the status quo, um, which is interesting. You know, I look at a guy like Elon Musk who basically just wants to reinvent how we do space and he wants to reinvent how we do cars and, you know, he risks everything. And yet he's held up as, uh, not yet, I don't mean that, and he's held up as a guy that sort of is an innovator and has accomplished amazing things. If you can accomplish amazing things by risking a few things here and there and getting past the status quo, and you can get your company over the next hurdle by pushing your company to embrace change or even to go back to what you said earlier, being comfortable, learning to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, why don't more people do it? (laughs) Because... Because it's hard, uh, you know. I mean, all the my experience, but all the research comes back the same. I mean, whether it's McKinsey or Deloitte or any other global consulting firm, or you know, most organizations that are that try to uh, enact any type of significant transformational effort, uh, it's usually about a you know seventy percent or so falls significantly short of meeting the intended objective uh, because of several things. One is uh, not complete buy-in and alignment, especially at the top. Uh, I've seen that in my own companies where. Uh, there, you know, we were challenged in my last company because of a significant divide in uh, the vision, strategy, and tactics of where we wanted to go, and a divide in where we wanted to go. <laughs> Period. <laughs> How we were going to get there. Um, so when you have a lack of alignment, uh, especially at the top and throughout the ranks of the organization, uh, whether it's intended or, or unintentional uh, lack of alignment, just due to or lack of communication. Uh, then you're going to hit an inevitable barrier uh, at some point. Now, as we've seen, many organizations can can grow to significant levels uh, by having significant amounts of uh, misalignment uh, in leadership and, and, and vision. But at some point, uh, that level of success will will plateau. Uh, the other, you know, another piece to that uh, that causes those challenges and failures is. Uh, a lack of buy-in uh, and participation due to low levels of engagement. Uh, engagement, uh, low levels of engagement in organizations are often caused by uh, a misunderstanding of the purpose of the organization, uh, a, a culture that does not foster trust, transparency, and psychological safety. Uh, those are huge. Uh, that's something we really strive for a lot in in the SEAL teams is a high level of, of transparency and possibly even we might call it brutal honesty. Uh, so you, get, you, you learn to have thick skin real fast. Uh, which is harder to achieve in a civilian organization uh, most of the time. Uh, so low levels of trust, uh, a culture that does not foster accountability. You know, I argue and taking point that the, the two most important culture pillars for high performance and for successfully navigating change are accountability and trust. And those are culture pillars that can be designed, managed, and even measured uh, against not just the organization's growth, but your actual P&L performance uh, and how you operate uh, as an organization. But again, these things are challenging because they have to be part of the business strategy. It's not just something that you outsource to human resources or one you create a culture committee and they're going to do some some barbecues and you know stuff like that. That that, that can be a piece, a small element of how you manage a culture. Uh, but most just kind of do it because they want to check the box and say, well, you know, we do our annual offsite event and once a quarter we have the the company wide barbecue and. And we talk about culture and our values, you know, maybe at a company-wide meeting or we put it in a newsletter. You know, to follow a little bit back up on that principle, you know, why don't more people do it? You know, there's so many studies, uh, and I'm sure you've seen them as well, that says when you have a healthy culture, which is more than a ping pong table and a free gym membership uh, yeah. within the company, but a healthy culture within the organization, a culture where people lo- love and look forward to coming to work on Sunday night, uh, um, from Monday on Sunday night, they're excited about Monday work. Um, why then, when we spend so much money, we've spent so much 
effort and doing leadership training, do 79% of the workforce still feel underappreciated? What is all this leadership training going for if people don't like their boss and they don't like their job and the companies aren't really turning culture around and they're paying it lip service? Yet study after study shows that when you create an environment that's amazing and has a great culture that the organization thrives financially. What is going on? And are we putting too much emphasis on personal leadership and not enough emphasis on um, using culture as an enabler? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And the, the, the short answer on the leadership side is that most organizations actually just, you know, they know enough these days to know that, you know, good leadership is going to drive performance in the organization, retention, profitability, et cetera. That being said, most organizations either deprioritize leadership development initiatives or they do the bare minimum just to say they can check the box. And yes, we have, you know, developmental programs for upward mobility here in this organization and we engage and invest in leadership development and training, but they do so little and it's so infrequent or so inconsistent that it has real no impact on long term behavioral change. Uh, and that's really what impacts the organization's uh, performance and the ability to manage a culture through inspirational leadership and leaders who understand how to communicate the vision and the purpose of the organization effectively so that everybody in the organization in a perfect utopia emotionally connects to that purpose and they understand how their day-to-day job functions and job responsibilities, even the most mundane, non-sexy elements of their job, but they understand how all of their activities and behaviors drive mission success for the organization as a whole. Uh, They understand how they fit into the culture and the unique subcultures that oftentimes exist in organizations, especially the larger they get. Um, But without ongoing uh, investment of time and resources in in developing leaders and onboarding new talent and training that talent and having succession plans, then you get a very haphazard uh, approach towards leadership in an organization, especially if leadership behaviors and norms uh, and expectations aren't clearly defined and we train towards those clearly defined expectations. And we work with all types of different organizations and our programs are, I know everybody says this, but they're highly customized because we want to make sure we're uh, approaching these that particular organization. We develop uh, you know, team charters that associate values with sporting behaviors and accountability. Well, we, we highly value integrity here, and everybody who works here really connects to that value. Well, that might mean something slightly different in one organization as it does in another organization. In one organization, it might be more internal. In another one, it might be more external, or how they define integrity and the associated behaviors and the accountabilities so that we can measure uh, our performance against that value. Uh, is oftentimes going to be a little bit different uh, from organization uh, to organization. So without effective leadership development, leadership training, uh, and good leaders at every level in the organization, where we can then decentralize decision-making and create more autonomy in the organization, you know, decentralization, autonomy, and the ability for people to master a specific trade and, and feel connected to that, uh, their purpose in the organization are some of the key drivers of motivation and engagement. Those uh, have to be part of the the strategy of the organization as it relates to their people practices. Otherwise, you, you just get sort of a haphazard mix of different people who believe in different things. They might understand their general job function, but it doesn't take that organization to the next level where, to, like you said, people are like, I love working here. This is a great organization, a great place to work. I don't, and I don't just like the people. We, you can look at all the different you know, off-the-shelf uh, employee engagement surveys, and some of them have similar questions like, you know, I, I have a best friend at work or I understand, uh, you know, my job function and how it drives mission success in the organization. Or, you know, in the last six months, my manager uh, has talked to me about you know, developmental opportunities or enlisted my feedback about you know, performance of the organization. So these different types of questions that you can measure and rate engagement uh, as it associates with the culture and performance of the organization. But when we don't do it consistently uh, and it's not part of a, an initiative, uh, then typically it falls short. Uh, or you still get extremely low levels of engagement, therefore high turnover, high costs, uh, and oftentimes that can damage the overall internal and external brand of an organization. If you know people are like, oh, yeah, they make a lot of money, but that place sucks to work. <laughs> you know, we've seen some of that with organizations we work with. That's right. I, uh, you know, you guys are not able to uh, see Brent, but uh, I can attest and witness that he is not reading that, ladies and gentlemen. 
that is all from his heart and is all from that big brain of his and uh, his passion as well. Uh, incredible, incredible answer. So as we wrap it up, Brent, as we wrap it up, we'll get into our lightning round in a minute where we're going to ask you a couple of questions. But before we do, you know, you've kind of you've gotten to witness, you've gotten to kind of experience our target uh, demographic, you know, the, the, our listeners and what they're looking to achieve from from listening to this pod. What's something maybe that we haven't asked you? Maybe that you're like, man, what they, they should have asked me this. Because I could have given a great answer for this. What's something maybe, and no Russian answering, but what's something maybe that uh, we might have missed along this this uh, subject? One element, where I touched on it briefly, and we've, we've covered it uh, from a high degree, but one thing that's really important in organizations that goes back to uh, how you align cultural experiences, rituals, and behavioral expectations in an organization so that people proactively take the necessary actions to achieve uh, desired results. You know, it's kind of this results pyramid. There's several layers. Uh, at the top, you have uh, the results the organization is trying to achieve. Uh, then you're asking yourself, okay, well, these are our associated results with these initiatives, these goals, these strategic imperatives. How do we get there? Well, we have to make sure that we have uh, a proper plan with the necessary actions, the who, the what, the when, uh, you know, time-bound goals that are concise, uh, that, that excite people. Uh, those are the actions. And then, you know, it, uh, we get a little deeper here and we're, okay, well, what are the actual the beliefs that everyone in an organization uh, needs to authentically embody from the top down, bottom up, horizontally, um, those beliefs that will drive the organization forward. They're part of the value system. They, they align with the culture uh, and those beliefs drive those actions so that we achieve those desired results. Uh, and, you know, in the SEAL teams, it's obviously, it, it, it's easier in a way because there's a clear mission. Our mission is to purge the world of evil. <laughs> that, those are my words. But it, it's, 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 it, right. it's easy to emotionally connect to such a clear and concise purpose uh, in an organization like that. In some business organizations, to your point earlier, an accounting firm or construction company, you know, it, they have to work a little harder to uh, to create that connectivity uh, so that people really believe in everything they're doing every single day. They're excited on Sunday night to get up and crush Monday and go work hard with their coworkers to achieve common goals. Uh, and then that bottom layer of that sort of results pyramid, so to speak, is uh, the rituals. Uh, so oftentimes we miss that piece. Well, if we're trying to design a culture and support certain behaviors and reward the behaviors we want and not tolerate the behaviors we don't, oftentimes you have to design specific cultural experiences or rituals uh, in an organization uh, to support those behaviors. So for example, and, and that, that, that results pyramid also is how you design a culture uh, that really leans into accountability, not accountability as a, uh, you know, that negative connotation, but a positive connotation where performance is high, morale is high, everyone holds themselves and each other to the highest standard possible. And, uh, and that's how you align an organization to achieve the desired business outcomes, because everybody is essentially behaving in the, the appropriate manner, uh, the manner in which can be measured through rewards and recognition programs. Uh, you can use it for talent acquisition, onboarding, uh, training, development, uh, and anything outside of that spectrum that has been clearly defined and understood by all in a perfect utopia. Again, um, anything outside of that is either not tolerated or must be trained uh, into those individuals who somewhat fall short of that expectation. Uh, so that that results pyramid is uh, not just how you align those behaviors to achieve results, but also how you create a much higher degree of accountability. And as most of the listeners out there know, a culture of accountability has a direct and very measurable impact on growth, performance, and, and profitability uh, of great organizations out there. Um, so just kind of diving a little bit deeper into that, that's just one thing I, I wanted to uh, convey uh, to the listeners. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of procedures and processes and mechanisms that go into each of the layers of that results pyramid and how you do it. Uh, but that's just a quick sort of down and dirty model uh, that I talk about, you know, in my first book. And I actually come back to it in the second book as it relates to our personal ability to align our beliefs and values with actions to achieve goals. That's perfect segue into our uh, our lightning round, honestly. So what we like to do is ask a couple of short questions uh and fire away so currently are you reading any books uh i am currently reading a couple books I, i've taken uh i did a lot of uh research and reading for the new book so uh i'm, I'm now uh on some some fun reading uh jack carr as you know his uh 
his trilogy that's out right now with the Terminalist, Savage Son. Uh, great books. So I'm doing some some fun reading right now. <laughs> so if you guys out there, if you haven't checked out Jack Howard and his, his books, they've been phenomenally successful. Uh, New York Times bestselling lists uh, a couple times now. Uh, Chris Pratt is, uh, uh, now owns the rights to uh, the Terminalist, and oh, they'll be there working on a, oh, a TV show. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Uh, cool. Cool. Uh, what's your favorite book? Can't include yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, this, there's so many. I, these these questions are always tough. It's like saying, "What's your favorite movie?" But the I I've, I've got a lot of. Uh, when it relates to business books, uh, a lot of the traditional ones that I learned a lot from, you know, as a transitioning seal and uh, you know want to be entrepreneur. <laughs> Tom's books and Good to Great and you know, Last Commercial Golds. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, got you here won't get you there. And uh, and, and uh, another book uh, by a consulting firm called Partners in Leadership. Uh, they wrote a book um, about creating a culture of accountability um, and, and how that's a, a game changer for organizations. That has a lot of great case studies in that book on the actual how. One, one thing I really like about the books I mentioned is they're not sort of that high level leadership and you know organization books, but they give you actual models to follow. But here's how you actually do this, because a lot of books out there are inspiring, and but we don't really walk away with, okay, how do we do that? I, I tried to achieve that with Taking Point as well, being a little bit more prescriptive in the manner in which I deliver some of the models, uh, as opposed to just telling a bunch of king guy stories. And there's some stories in there, but I wanted to lean more towards providing a tool for leaders, managers, and just individuals and organizations to better navigate change. Um, but uh, but yeah, those are from a business standpoint. Those are some of my, you know, uh, oldies, oldies but goodies that I, I refer back to uh, from from time to time. But I, yeah, I also, I, I've also found that, that that not just reading books on, you know, how to be a better leader and how to design a great culture and, uh, you know, improve, blah 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 blah. Is also reading the biographies or autobiographies of some of the greatest leaders out there. Uh, I interviewed, as you know, uh, General James Mattis the other day for one of our Seal Family Foundation. Uh, town hall uh, fundraisers and his book. I haven't finished it, but phenomenal. I mean, it's just a wealth of wisdom and knowledge just by reading the the, the path that someone uh, as great as him has taken uh, and the leadership challenges that he's leading thousands of people. <laughs> so those can be really great uh, ways to learn about leadership uh, is by reading the, the story and the history of great leaders. Yeah, that's great. Hey, do you have any uh, personal daily rituals? Yeah, uh, I do. I've They've become more uh, more consistent now that I've uh, not been traveling for three, four months. <laughs> People always, well, right. you know, what kind of, you, yeah. know, you're a seal. you must have a, you know, you must get up really early and have this routine. I'm like, well, I, I also travel almost every single week. So uh, there are certain elements to that routine, such as, you know, fitness and mental wellness and, uh, and um, uh, you know, reading or, you know, journaling or writing that I love trying to do every day, if not, you know, the majority of days in a week. Uh, but those, obviously, those schedules have to adapt to whatever uh, travel schedule I'm on. Um, but yeah, fitness is one. Uh, I, I and, and you get this, obviously, that I believe that uh, a healthy mind and body uh, is a very, very significant factor in um, being successful in any endeavor, especially as it relates to leadership. Um, you know, healthier mind, healthier body, you have more energy, uh, typically you manage stress better, and therefore you can manage people better uh, by controlling your emotions and thinking more clearly. Uh, so fitness is always one. Uh, obviously now prioritizing uh, family is very important. Uh, I got a little, a little nugget for you here, buddy. Um, you know, we have three kids. Well, guess what gotten daddy off the road got us. <laughs> we're, we're expecting uh, oh, a new baby. Uh, congrats. <laughs> oh, man. Congrats. That is COVID awesome. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, yeah, it really comes down to that being able so to cool. integrate, you know, work and life, but also, you know, having those general routines around uh, the prioritization of family and, and you know, physical and mental wellness. Those, those things are important to me. And Yeah. yeah. What's uh, so? I, my next, my last question actually is personal goals for the summer of the year, but I probably already know the answer. <laughs> get, re get ready to be a dad all over again. <laughs> yeah, my let's just say my goals shifted <laughs> uh, a right. few weeks ago when we we got this news. So we we uh, we'll find out the 
we'll do a little gender reveal here in a few days. But um, okay. yeah, I mean, yeah, preparing for that, uh, preparing for that is going to be a, a big focus for uh, for Mama and me. But um, other than that, really, yeah, just full transparency is uh, continuing to try to navigate. Uh, you know, our organization and team through uh, this current environment. Uh, you know, it's not like everyone, it's not been easy. Uh, so having to really innovate and get creative and how we engage new and potential, uh, you know, clients and uh, how we cater those service offerings to help organizations uh, not necessarily even thrive right now, but uh, but survive and, and figure out new, because, you know, leading when, when, uh, when times are great and uh, the balance sheet looks healthy and there's not a global pandemic, a recession or nationwide rioting, that's easy. <laughs> but leading when times are tough and the battlefield is chaotic is a whole different ballgame. So that's awesome. really you know part of our mission uh, just in general, but obviously now more so than ever. So, Of course. And lastly, and the most important, where can everyone find out more about you, get a hold of you, find out what you got working on, what you're doing, sure. what's going on in your world? Tell everyone uh, sure. where they can find you. Um, our company website is takingpointleadership.com. So a lot of great content on there. Uh, a little bit more, obviously, about our, um, our our service offerings and how we engage in, in leadership, uh, organizational development, culture transformation, et cetera. Um, uh, my from social media, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, easy to find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on Instagram now. I was told that I need to be on Instagram if I'm going to uh, you know, be a, a successful human. So I've been uh, <laughs> I've been dabbling with Instagram lately. Um, my Instagram handle is Brent underscore Gleason. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, just at Brent Gleason. So those are the main social channels that I'm on, but uh, our company website. And then also for for resources uh, and articles, uh, got a, a, a regular Forbes leadership column. So if you just do a Google search for Forbes, Brent Gleason, uh, there's dozens and dozens of articles that dive deep into everything we just talked about. So that's another good good resource. So. Uh, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much, brother, for being here. This has been wonderful. Uh, Chris, are you still with us, buddy? Still here. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for dealing with the uh, with the bad audio today. COVID night, COVID nineteen in twenty twenty. So yep. again, big shout out. <laughs> Why to not? Joining us. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Culture Force podcast. Please don't forget to leave a review down below. We love your comments. Also, if you just want to make fun of Chris, that would be pretty funny too. Authorized, fully authorized to do that. So please, we'd love to hear your comments. Leave them below. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode where we have Larry McIntosh, the VP, the former VP, excuse me, of Pepsi marketing. He turned Pepsi blue. He was there when Michael Jackson caught his hair on fire. It's going to be a lot of fun. Check it out.